0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We're going to Australia, Tyler. The first time we've done an interview from the incredible country of Australia. Can't wait. Can't wait. And we have an incredible guest to talk about the sociology of the shoreline and the coast. We are really pleased to welcome as a, as a guest, the first Australian guest to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, Dr. Nick Osbaldiston, who is a sociologist at James Cook University in Cairns, Australia, which is on the northeast shoreline of Australia. And uh, Dr. Baldiston, if we can call you Nick, it would help. Um, i was Balderson. Um, yeah, Nick Nick's fine. I don't, <laughs> that's perfectly legitimate. <laughs> is a is a coastal researcher and scientist, a sociologist who looks at coastal development. He looks at coastal migration. He looks at the sociology and the meaning of the coast in the world. I don't know, Tyler. We've been th- trying to figure out what's happening on the beaches, and I, we, we. That's right. So uh,
1: pulling back the curtain. Peter and I have a meeting at the beginning of it, beginning of every week. We try to ask ourselves uh, what is going on, what is interesting on the American shoreline. And we try to—that's how we line up our content. This is our, this is the magic method here at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, but it's obviously important. We have to ask ourselves what's timely. And this week, something really important happened on the American shoreline and on shorelines all over the world. Uh, that are in the process of reopening, we saw uh, people pouring out to the beaches, and um, in the in the wake of COVID, this is just a kind of a, a shocking sight. And this got us thinking: like, what is really happening here? Why are people coming out? And it really is a question about our society and our society's relationship with the beach and our and the psychology of the shoreline and the draw of the shoreline. So I asked Peter a question. I said, "Peter, who out there talks about society's relationship with the beach other than us?" <laughs> <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> and uh, well we do. But. we went online and we started doing research. And I think we found one of the world's leading experts, uh, thought leaders who have just dedicated their lives to uh, answer this very question. So I really look forward to this discussion with Nick. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word with our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Rivella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune
0: walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Well, Nick, thank you very much for taking time and good morning. It's the you it is the morning down in Australia for this interview. It is 7 p.m. here in Austin, Texas, so Uh, Good morning, and I think you're a day ahead of us. I I think it's Friday. This is Thursday evening. Uh, uh, The show's coming out on Monday. But uh, thanks for... Agreeing to be on a podcast in America about beaches and shorelines with
2: a couple guys you have absolutely no idea who we are. <laughs> no, my pleasure, and uh, I can tell you that we are a day ahead, but things are still the same. So <laughs> nothing's changed. That's right. Well, I guess we're all in it together. the The positive thing about
1: a global oh. pandemic is that we're all in one big boat. But uh, Nick, let's start getting to know you. Uh, tell us about your uh background where where do you come from and how did you become a scholar
2: on societies and coasts well yeah that's a a great uh thought about that actually and i was thinking about that the other day as i was sort of walking along our beach here is why is it i became so obsessed with talking about the beach and the coast i ask
1: myself that question all the time
2: yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, I was actually born in New Zealand, of all places, uh, in a place called North Shore, just uh, north of Auckland. And we have a number of beaches around that area that uh, I grew up around. Uh, we moved to Australia when I was fairly young to a place called Newcastle, when, uh, which is r- pretty renowned for its beaches as well. Uh, and then... I spent the majority of my uh, formative years, I guess you could say, in uh, Brisbane, Australia, which is in Queensland. And Brisbane is um, not that far away from uh, the Sunshine Coast and, of course, the fairly well-known, and uh, so Americans know a lot about this, the Gold Coast. And so I spent a lot of my domestic tourism days uh, going down to the Gold Coast and spending time on the beach, uh, body surfing, did a bit of bodyboarding, never actually got into surfing myself personally because I'm just too uncoordinated. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, spending all that time doing that stuff. And then when I went to university, uh, I managed to spend a fair bit of time doing all this stuff about, uh, I was really privileged in some ways to get a lot of um, geography actually uh, and human geography and the relationships that we have to place and space the emotions that it gives us. And I was actually also privileged to get a little bit of philosophy, too, which was interesting and be exposed to a bit of the romantics in the poets and so forth. And as I I was, I was then really lucky when I finished my Ph.D. because I did my Ph.D. on uh, migrants, uh, internal migrants in Australia who moved to uh, out of the cities into for the most part in Australia, coastal places. Um, and they're kind of drawing away from that. And that's got to do a lot with the stresses of the city and various other things like that, I suppose. Uh, and then after that, I was very fortunate to get a, a postdoctoral research fellowship with the university of Melbourne with some geographers looking at climate change adaptation. And that's when I really started to get interested, I think in what, what it is that we, why do we value the coast the way that we do, uh, where does that actually come from? Uh, where is it, uh, where is it today and then also more interestingly i think is where is it going and and of course when you talk about climate change you can't talk about things uh, enough about things like sea level rise uh, increased storm surge events and things like that so that's a that's a quick overview biography of where i've been and and where my kind of obsession with the coast has come from i suppose
0: well, it you know the, for the folks out there, and I want you if you're listening to the podcast and you have access to your computer, Google this up. Uh, Nick wrote the book called "Towards the Sociology of the Coast: Our Past, Present, and Future Relationship to the Shore." It's the kind of topic that just rings with Tyler and I because we talk about this all the time about the unique mm-hmm. nature, the human relationship. And I just got to tick off a couple of chapters, and I have not read the book, I will be honest. We just came across this yesterday. But, <laughs> uh, published in 2018 by Paul Grave Macmillan Press out of London. These are some of the chapters that caught my opinion and w- w- my attention as we were looking for who can we call, who can explain some of this to us. Uh, but the pre-modern coast, the modern mm-hmm. coast, the finders, the finders, the explorers, Uh, chapter called The Gnosis Story, Early Modernity Meets Lifestyle, The Lifestyle Crows Protecting the Authenticity, uh, Surfer's Paradise. I love this one. Modernity Meets Adventure on the Coast, which I think is a key element. The risk, the, the, the access to kind of digestible risk that happens around the coast and water and waves. And I love this chapter, the adventure coast, the glitz and glamour of surfers paradise, hedonism, which is very much a coastal thing, transgression (laughs) and the adventure. I mean, when I see all these people pouring onto the beaches right after the COVID epidemic is getting starting to loosen up here in the United States, you realize people are taking a chance. And one of the Mm. things I think in the commentary of the decisions in Florida to open up the coast is sort of this feeling that who are these nut jobs and why are they taking a risk with their life and there this isn't safe and but this kind of is nick is 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 something that rung true with me when i was looking at what you've written is there is something fundamental about this notion of risk and the unknown and the forbidden that is in fact the draw i don't know i'm i i do not know if i'm piecing this together in a way that makes any sense at all but
2: Work. Yeah, no, I think that's in, incredibly, and you just made me think about uh, some of the stuff that you hear about people who are surfers in particular and some of the kind of edge, what what social psychology calls the edge work that goes into play when you're, just, when you're doing the surfing. Um, the risks that are associated with the overcoming of risks and things like that are fundamental features of coastal life. Not for all, though, and I, I think that's... An interesting thing to kind of consider upon, I've been thinking a lot about this actually in the recent COVID stuff and we have very similar situations here in Australia where they had to close down uh, a number of coastal places and beaches and some of our more famed beaches like Bondi Beach in Sydney. Um, and it was just because people were not heeding uh, social distancing policies and advice and various other things. And so they've opened it up now to the fact that you can swim, but I don't think you can sunbathe on the beaches. They certainly can't here in Cairns, but it's, it's interesting because it opens up this kind of space about what, what beaches are for. And you kind of alluded to this already, you know, what is the purpose of the beach and, and why, and how do we get so attracted to it? Because there are beaches in, and Australia is a very, very big place uh, that perhaps a lot of people are, are kind of surprised to see, or, or when they look at the map of the place in comparison to the USA, our coastline is massive. Um, but there are uh, beaches in Australia that you just literally cannot swim in. Like in Cairns, for instance, we um, we have a small local saying that I that I've come to realise over time is quite correct is. Beaches are, are really for walking on and, and swimming pools are for swimming in. And that's really in summertime. We just can't swim in our beaches because of uh, stingers uh, or jellyfish or whatever you want to call them. Um, the whole beach is basically get shut down. Uh, and also you've got crocodiles. So, you know, it becomes a really interesting thing when you have a beach that's beautiful and looks amazing tropically, but you can't actually get in it. Uh, and that changes that changes the whole idea of what a beach is for. Right. And, and then you Australian can go all the way down situation. to the other end of the country to Tasmania, where you have beaches that are absolutely stunning to look at and empty and, and 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 just beautiful. I have to say, and I've been there a number of times, but the water is just so cold. You can't, you, you can't get into them. So, again, it's a, a very different idea of what the beach is. And, and And some colleagues and I have talked about this for a number of years now that no beach is really the same in Australia. We have very, very different types of beaches, but sometimes we try to force the sort of homogenous view of what a beach should be on on all of them, which doesn't work because, you know, in Cairns, in for instance, there's just no surf beaches anywhere, so there's no surfing at all. So it becomes a very interesting way of thinking about the different ways in which we engage with beaches, period.
1: I want to take a moment, Nick, and uh, indulge, our audience here in the United States, but also around the world. And we do have some Australian listeners out there. So for you guys, this will be... We do. This will be a a refresher. But um, you have studied uh, societal uh, relationships with coastlines, and I'm just curious to know uh, what the Australian coastal identity is. And if you would, as a foreigner, I would love for you to describe the American uh,
0: coastal identity. Wait, he's not the foreigner. We're the foreigners. He's from, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying I,
1: I want, I want him to introduce us to no, there, no, but i w I'm curious to know what they think of our coastal, uh, identity, you know, what do you think?
2: Well, I, this is interesting because I, I suspect that you, eh, Americans probably have a very stereotypical view about our coastline that comes through the various media engagements that we've had over the years uh, about Australia's coast. Um, you kind of uh, probably seen it in movies and so forth, like bronzed men and women running around beaches and sunbathing and all sorts of other things and surfing and all that sort of other jazz. I have to say, unfortunately, um we have a very stereotypical view of America generally speaking, of your coastal engagement, and a lot of it really comes out of California. Um, and the kind of the wide expansive beaches, the surfing uh all the sort of stuff that we've seen on television over the years baywatch etc etc i have to say baywatch was a really well uh watched (laughs) show here for a number of years in australia
0: and it all had to do
2: with beach culture that's what i watched it for as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh and um what we don't see, and I guess this is this comes back to my my understanding of, of America's beaches, uh, is that, again, it's the same thing as what I've just described, right? It's that not one beach in America is the same as others. And I think what we tend to kind of not really have much knowledge about is the kind of shoreline on the other side of the continent, um, the, you know, the East Coast. Uh, we don't really see a lot. or I don't at least see a lot in Australian media about that. Other than Florida, and even then, I don't think we really have a very good grasp on what Florida really is. Um, other than when a when a when a hurricane comes through, yeah. I'm sorry to say, yeah, then we see how uh, how the how the Florida coastline looks like. Um, but yeah, for the most part. Our understanding of America's beaches really comes out of the West and uh, West Coast culture. All right,
1: all right, Nick. Let me follow up on that a little bit, though. <laughs> so that that okay. that no, that was extremely helpful because what you did is you explained kind of your impressions as an Australian of what the American shoreline is, and I appreciate that. That's very important. But now I want you to perf- put your uh, your academic cap on and sure. help me out with the. Kind of cultural meaning of it all, if you will. So uh, mm-hmm. now I'm not. I'm sure that my Australian history is pretty poor, but I do know <laughs> that Australia was a colony yes. of yes. Great Britain. Um, That's correct. Yeah. And that, and so I, I, the coastal identity and the coast, and we're Britain, an island nation with a big, powerful navy, bringing people. <laughs> Prisoners, I guess, like kind of some undesirable <laughs> folks is the kind of, the, you know, that's the reputation on the street down sure. to Australia. Criminals. <laughs>
0: <Sure>. <laughs> Look how well it's turned out. It's the it's the best argument ever for rehabilitation. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, yeah. it's so, really so. What it's worked out. But um,
1: I'm the, that historical connection with the beach. Now, we we've talked here. On our show before in America with our relationship to the working waterfront of early America mm-hmm. um, the yeah. the maritime industry fishing shipbuilding was just essential to er- the early American life and therefore the early American identity with our winning the Revolutionary War and so on and so forth it was just it was the water we're on the edge And yeah, and we and we in America, we hear all the time that we're protected by two oceans, two seas on both sides. Mm -hmm. You guys have seas on all sides. (laughs) (laughs) No neighbors. You have no borders. It's all ocean. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. and and I'm just curious to know what that what that English or British uh, cultural relationship to the shore does to the Australian coastal identity.
2: Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that. Um, There's so much there. Yeah. First and foremost, you need to understand uh, that Australia was, uh, is and still remains a fairly young country uh, in comparison to other states in Europe and and other places around the world. And so our relationship to the coast is is relatively new and still fairly fresh, I think. What you actually, what you already know is that we were colonized. uh, We've actually just come up to the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's landing here in Australia. What we cannot um, understate is the ways in which the British colonialists actually uh, almost decimated and removed completely indigenous uh, relationships to coasts. Uh, So indigenous people here were almost kind of forcibly removed out either by force or through what I kind of point out in the book is um, a a rationalization of the coast, which is basically that, you know, they brought with them English law, which basically said, this is common land, this is private land, and then they start parceling up coastal places in in that kind of respect. But one of the things that really drove indigenous people out was industry, as you kind of make a point about before, and the industry that was uh, Australia um, was very fledgling. We were a clone, we weren't a nation, We were a bunch of colonies, so we had Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria and uh, and a few other states, uh, what we call states now, but they were colonies at the time. And in a place like Queensland, the colony was uh, was quite poor at one stage and we needed cash pretty quickly. So industry became the major thing that drove uh, our coastal development, in particular, the timber industry. Um, And there was lots of good timber across the Queensland coastline that drove that kind of expansion into those particular areas. Uh, And that kind of uh, drive for industry um, then saw the development of coastal ports and things not that different to what's happened in America. Uh, To the point that you'd have to say um, we're still seeing that the, the impacts of that today where most of our development is on the coastline. Uh, most of it or pretty much all of our major cities are on the coastline. Uh, we don't really have any inland cities at all. Um, and we've got very limited inland development, realistically speaking, a big patch of Australia is just, uh, is very bare. Um, and so that, that drive for industry and that, that need for colonial, uh, cash, if you, if for want of a better word and capitalism really is, we've seen the imprint of it is still seen today. Um, I I guess at a certain point in England, though, and you probably know this as well, the romantics start taking over a little bit, right? And they start seeing the coast as something a little bit different, not just a place to work, but also a place to go and be refreshed and to be, um, uh i guess rejuvenated from the horrors of <laughs> of industrial capitalism yeah uh and so you, in england you had a place like brighton start to develop into a, a kind of a place for londoners to escape to and what you actually see is that those ideas get transported across into australia in the uh, specifically in around about the 1800s that was, that was
0: king george's uh i think it was it king george the for its escape was to go to the Brighton coast where we'd get to That's unwind correct. from the pressure of London politics. And, and yeah. it was about the casualness that women was an important part of that. The fun, the, you know, the freeform life that comes next to the water. Uh, to, yeah. That's fill right. us in more about this transformation of the coast from a place um, that was somewhat fearful uh, maybe, to a, a place of relaxation rejuvenation and and I, I don't know if i want to say i want to say hedonism um, but i'm not I, I, that may be too strong a word but the, you know people people let loose when they get near the water and i've always been curious about that
2: yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, again, there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Um, I, I think the first thing to go back to, and this goes even way back before colonial times, is that the coast was seen as a fearful place. And, and I think that's something that we maybe forget. Um, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition with relation to the coast is not one of like, oh, wow, look at this coastline, how beautiful. It's more of a, oh, crap, look at this coastline. This is where all the people died. Uh, and this is where all the dead bones are as a consequence of the, uh, of the, um, uh, of the flood of Noah. Um, and there's plenty of, of, of interesting examples of that as you go through back through, uh, some of the stuff that you can read even just to this day about, um, the coast being a place of of divine sublime if you like this is a place where god basically punished but also this is a place where god actually protected us uh jehovah if you want to use the, the kind of judeo-christian times and even as you go through the old testament you can see examples of this kind of idea of the great deep being this great unknown and and uh, this kind of place where we shudder to look at, so to speak. And, and, uh, and it becomes a very interesting way of thinking about that. As you progress forward, though, into enlightenment, and we start to lose all that religious uh, narrative, we start to be able to overcome that stuff with science, right? And this is where, I guess, I'm interested in the work of the, the coastal explorers. And in particular, in the book, I talk about a fellow by the name of Matthew Flinders, who was uh, a slightly more unsung hero in terms of exploration, um, in fact, he actually, uh, died fairly, uh, um, uh, in, in, not, not so much in the sort of glory that he thought he would, like Captain Cook. Um, but he was, uh, well, His, his set out to basically, uh, map the entirety of, of the coast of Australia, which is one significant feat, um, so that no one else would ever have to do it again. And that kind of demonstrated to me when I was researching this, the kind of the, the, the change, the switch, if you like, to, from a coast that has to be or a water that needs to be feared to one that can be overcome and subdued. Fast forward and into the Romantic period. And then you actually have this kind of change, the Romantics like Wordsworth and various others who saw the beach and the sea as a place of refreshment of, of, of the senses being refined. And of course, when we had science come into play and say so things like that, the salt water and things like that, and bathing in salt water would actually heal you from illnesses and protect you and, and do all sorts of different things like that. Um, and then you fast forward even more into as we get into kind of uh, the 1960s, 70s and 80s in particular in Australia, and you actually start to see the coast change even further from a place of refreshment to a place of uh, uh, okay. letting go. I can say cocaine, I did.
1: No, I mean you're, we're That's coming. Only Miami. That's <laughs> no, no. Hey, listen. No, no. I'm, no. I'm not. I'm not I'm... <laughs>
2: I don't know about cocaine, but yeah, certainly, but... Uh, certainly one of uh of a different narrative. But the 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 thing that I'd say about that in Australia, and this is what I try to tease out in the book, is that different coasts develop their own different, what I, what I call rationalities, which comes from a term that Max Weber, a German sociologist, came up with some time ago. And those rationalities are around values, right? So, certain beaches have certain values. And the Gold Coast and Surface Paradise definitively develops this transgressive, hedonistic narrative of coming down here and letting loose, as right. you kind of pointed out before. Yeah. Spring, but then you have right. another coast, a uh, place like Noosa, Uh, which is something that you uh, mentioned before, Noosa has a very different uh, narrative that that underpins it, which is about engaging slowly with nature. And they've done a lot of attempts to protect coastal parks there and various other things. And they've actually fought to the point where they actually have um, uh, got regulation in place there that limits high rise development, for instance. Mm. And one of the things you'll actually notice about the history of Noosa when you look at those fights, is they always say things like, we don't want to be the next, um, and I hate to say this, California. Yeah, really?
0: That's one of our better (laughs) ways. They should have said Florida.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, California, because uh, California was seen as uh, a perfect example of um, what happened on the Gold Coast, right? They saw the Gold Coast as being completely ruined and they didn't want to be that. And so they say, we don't want to be the next Gold Coast. We don't want to be the next California. We are going to be this... Place that has this kind of slow narrative, being in touch with nature, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and goes on. So, so thanks for every the- coast sort of does their different things, and and the Gold Coast is by no means the same uh, narrative that you'll find in different places around Australia.
0: I, I appreciate the nuance here, and it's actually uh, I stand corrected in terms of sort of making a relationship with the shoreline one-dimensional. Um, okay. I like this idea that. And there is a culture. If you go to Maine in the US, the, right. the, the, the value of the coast is definitely not a high development shoreline. It's about the, I don't want to say quaintness because that doesn't give it justice. It's about the authenticity of the place, not wanting mm-hmm. to over exploit it. It's, it's about the, it, it is about, you know, the, the, the really the Protestant work ethic like manner of relating to the mm-hmm. beach the lobster fishery the hard-working yeah, the guys boat, the wooden boat all of that is the culture there is south padre island there is florida there is the hedonistic relationship with the shoreline but that's not universal even in america
2: no definitely no. not and even as you go up the up the californian coastline you would have to say it's sure it's just not the same either right as you get further and further up carmel um, and
1: oh yeah, no i mean it's, I was, it's, it's As the resident Californian, I'll tell you right now that (laughs) Southern California or SoCal, as uh, we call it, uh, is its own state, really. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. we'd happily step away uh, from NorCal, but, you know, we don't really care. But NorCal people are just preoccupied. They burn so much energy. Thinking about how terrible Southern California is, it's almost like they
0: really like it and they just can't admit it. You got to feel better than somebody else, and that's what you do. But the Northern yeah, California right. coast is the land of the redwoods down to the water. Correct. We're talking about Crescent City. There's a couple of small towns that are on the water. Um, it is about engagement with nature and the and and just the power of the cal. I mean, the California coast is. It's stunning. It's it's part of that Pacific Northwest vibe. Yeah, you get the Pacific Northwest Um, vibe. as, As
1: opposed to the Southern California in the Lakers. We're talking about the Lakers now. Uh, now we're in now we're in Laker land. We're talking about land. Okay. We we were not we don't need to pivot to basketball. I we know, were gonna
0: ask you about whether you were an Australian football fan or an Australian basketball fan, but uh, Yeah, what, you're, what if, your if sport, you
1: have any sport what your sport of uh, choice was. But, but right. we, we did decide before we started recording that we weren't
2: gonna do that. Yeah, we weren't gonna do that. <laughs> <So we're> gonna, <laughs> it's it's well, I used to be very much a basketball fan in in the glory days of basketball. I have to say, I think that the NBA is kind of pivoted. Were you a Luke through. Longley fan? Yeah, of
0: course, Luke Longley.
2: Uh, I was not a Chicago Bulls fan. I was actually a Rockets fan for a number of years. Really? Mm. Uh, I, I was a, uh, my favorite player of all time, and I hate to say this, and you probably don't like this, was a fellow by the name of Robert Ory, who oh, I just yeah. think is the most. Big incredible. shot Bob? Yeah. Are you
0: kidding me? Burying in the three from the corner, won a couple NBA uh, finals games. Robert Ory was
2: clutch. Yeah. And a legendary leg the, yeah. the most incredibly, <laughs> most incredible clutch player of all yeah. time. I have to say. Yeah. But also, it was interesting when. I, oh, sorry, we were going off topic. But I remember when, are, when fine, an interview happened. With, uh, Tim Duncan uh, had an interview, and um, and he, he was kind of annoyed about how. How much Robert Ory was quite, quite lazy and and uh, didn't really try as much as in, it's quite evident right when he when he was yeah. playing in, in in final series he just pulled it out man yeah like, he was the best but he yeah knew the I, moment I must admit that uh, yeah I've I've kind of moved away a bit from from basketball over the, the few years and I I guess it's because the that whole period of time just seemed to be full of these kind of guys that were just incredible uh, and just genuine players that really cared uh, about the game and I. Maybe I'm being a bit cynical about it. Just it doesn't seem to me that we just. Well, don't Tyler have the is, same.
0: Uh, you know, is, is very much into the whole basketball. So I've got to give you a chance to comment on this, Tyler. Like, what's the status of the? What do you think of that, You know, where are we in the NBA? Is it all showboat? It's not all showboat. Well,
1: I'm gonna being a coastal podcast. I'm gonna do my very best, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> to do the impossible here. But here's what I will say: We became too data heavy in the game. And mm. the game became uninteresting, uh, and more importantly, it became it, it dehumanized the most important parts of our relationship with uh, basketball, which is the human connection. It's improvisation. The ball is mm. moving at at the speed of thought, and the connection between the players on the court. They cannot communicate. Mm. At the speed that they are actually talking together It's like jazz musicians Improvising And Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there's a connection there On our coastlines Where we look I think we can become very data and modeling heavy And we Mm -hmm. don't understand the human element Or maybe even the better way to put it Is we don't understand the broader ecosystem And where we fit into it We are one player in in this game And uh, if when you rely on the data and you say, hey, I'm going to go to this corner and then I'm going to run up here, then I'm going to go down here. You're not seeing the big picture and that that uh, limits in the game of basketball. It becomes very predictable. And ultimately, I think what we saw in this last season, which was unfortunately cut short, is um, that that type of game can be hijacked. By people who are just not, by, by, by a team that's just not playing that, that game and does it actually just totally better and just breaks that Rubicon. Um so uh that is my uh attempt. That's a, that's a great I
0: mean so, look, <laughs> it is not easy to put coastal psychology coastal relationships in the
2: context. You know of what basketball that's a that was beautiful segue cool. though. That is a beautiful segue. And and actually what I talk about in the book is is that that kind of uh formal rationality that Max Weber talks about, the the calculative instrument of nature of rationality which is just part of the world that exists. So Weber, and this is the mistake that a lot of people make with Max Weber. Weber didn't say that the entire world was going to become like this, but he basically said that that world will actually start to clash with other rationalities, which can be about values and can be about um, ethics and various other things like spirituality. that. And that's what I see. Yeah. And that's what I see on the coastline, right? Like you just made a beautiful point before about sometimes we can get really obsessed in coastal planning and management about models and and uh and numbers and statistics and where the sea is going to be and all sorts of other different things like that but what we miss when we think about that from that perspective is is place value and the fact that people really do have an emotional attachment to these places for various reasons sometimes coastal players uh for and bless them i do love a lot of them they do some really fantastic work sometimes they miss that that emotionality that is attached to place uh, and the ways in which people use it. And sometimes they develop certain things that people just don't want. And that's becomes that's where it becomes really interesting the distinctions and the differences between, I think, in particular money and the idea that this is going to bring in more cash. But uh, in actual fact, that's not what underpins what people value about coasts as well.
0: Ooh, man, that is the kernel. that is I mean it's such a difficult concept that you just described to really mm-hmm. put your finger on. Uh, but i think it's 100 percent true and i and i just don't have the i haven't put it together enough to to really articulate it but i like the fact that this part of the conversation started with this relationship broadly speaking of of the water world or the ocean being a a foreign place and that is that was you know represented the great flood the, the 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 divine judgment of humanity. I mean, it was a, it was a a very scary place. The entrance of the enlightenment, the beginning of understanding this guy who, who you talked about, who mapped it, sought to map and to make rational, you know, the coastline of Australia and devoted his life to that exercise. The beginning of sort of getting on top of it and being less afraid we move past Jules Verne's, we move past the monsters of the deep, you know, you look at the old sketches of, you know, sailing ships with some gigantic beast, and that, you know, this was this very scary place, but what really captured, when I was looking through what you have done, you were coming around, I thought, to the notion that this sublime or this fearful aspect of the coast cannot be completely eliminated and is beginning to reemerge did i was i following your thought process i mean can you elaborate on that or change it if i'm i I was just you know i haven't done enough to understand what you've been researching but but i was very interested in this
2: yeah i think the sublime is 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 very much about um the unknown right and 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 what makes it so horrible uh, horrifying i should say is and you can see this in some of the narratives that come out of um the, the judeo-christian history relationship to the coast uh, and the sea for that matter uh i think it's job is it i can't remember who who says you know how great de- the depths of the sea and how great are their judgments and how mysterious it is and all sorts of other things um, and, and, what I try to do is kind of suggest in the book and, and, maybe I don't do a very good job of it, but really to suggest that that great unknown is coming back in, in, in significant fashion. Uh, I think what you can actually see when you actually start to look at the climate science in particular, is that we are starting to realize how much we just don't know in relation to sea level rise, right? we don't, if the West Antarctic ice shelf collapsed. Uh, We really don't know what that's going to do. And one of the things that COVID-19 has done, I think, is increasingly um, put aside uh, the climate science announcements and so forth. And so what we actually discovered uh, and it was almost kind of it was almost an afterthought in in the newspapers that that I saw here, was that Greenland's ice melt is contributing significantly to sea level rise now uh, in ways that perhaps we maybe didn't anticipate. So, there's a, there's a host of unknowns in relation and there's not a, a coastal uh, oceanographer out there who can definitively say, I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong and I'm not an oceanographer and I'm not a coastal geomorphologist by any stretch, who can definitively say that by 2070, the coastline will look like this, right? And that's no. the great unknown factor, right? And I think that's the thing that we are grappling with in some ways that we are trying as a rational, formal rationalized people to plan for something by saying, okay, the, the sea levels are going to rise. The IPCC have said in the past 0.8 of a meter by 2100. Well, there's a lot of people out there. Stefan Rahmstorff, for instance, has been saying for a long time, a very, very good oceanographer, uh, 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 that that's just completely conservative, that that figure should be, could be way higher than that could be, you know, upwards of about one point five to two meters. Yeah. But if we're trying to plan for something that we just have no idea about, like it's just unknown, then it becomes really difficult to do. And that's what plan- planning is a very rational instrument. But if you've got nothing to put a measure it against, it becomes a very, very difficult. And so what I've suggested in the book is that we've really got to rethink this and we've really got to rethink and maybe uh, draw in the precautionary principle a little bit here and say, do you know what, We've, we may have to rethink what we think about development on coasts, generally speaking. And maybe we need to have a rethink about what coasts are for, uh, are they for living on or are they for a public good? And that's a very different discussion. I think that moves the discussion away from, uh, how much should we be planning for and sea level rise to, hey, let's have a debate now about what coasts should be for more generally speaking. And should they be returned back to this idea of the common good again?
1: Okay. So Ooh. you you and said something that. there that you you just casually breezed over so <laughs> so <Fair> brilliantly. <laughs> no, I'm going I'm going to go back and highlight it cuz I just think it's great, which was the comparison between our models for coastlines and our models for COVID and how mm. it's this is not just think back 6 weeks, folks. Are and think where we are today. That, that probability curve was swinging radically and it continues to swing. And what, when we're talking about our coastlines and we're talking about a 50 year, the same thing is happening. It might be happening, uh, on a different time scale, but it is still happening. And I just, I wanted to go back and highlight that because I think it's just, we really, as people who think and, and think professionally about coastlines, Man, that is a great uh, just benchmark for us to remember. Very good comparison. Okay, so the, yeah uh, <clears throat> I want to shift now a little bit and talk about w- what you were talking there about asking our changing the questions that we ask ourselves as managers. Uh, mm. instead of a how are we going to uh, adapt to this and kind of maintain? let's review go back and even take a step back beyond that let's review our overall relationship with this space what's the point of it yeah what what, are we trying to do what is our what is our what is the purpose of our relationship with this space here right and how are we to get the highest and best value out of it now um obviously climate change is happening that is a motivating factor i would say frankly if climate change wasn't happening we should still be asking ourselves that question in the name yes. of in the name of environmental justice. Personally, this is my this is my personal belief, but I think that this is what we would make for the healthiest relationship with the environment if we really reassess that relationship. But we have an opportunity because of climate change. We're being forced hopefully into that discussion. <laughs> so hopefully so, Nick, t- Talk to me about how we can start that, that discussion. How do, we, how do we change? How do we make Shift that pivot? Years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Shift into, yeah. uh, into that new framework.
2: Well, I think you've you touched upon one point that I just wanted to come back to really quickly, and that is um, the idea that uh, we should be talking about this anyway. Uh, Even without climate change. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to think about because in in the tropics, for instance, especially here in Cairns, we, we, we have this strange relationship with the coast in that we just think, oh, we'll just keep building closer and closer and closer to it. And, you know, if something happens, then, you know, so be it. But it's happened too often, and you've, you've seen it in America with hurricanes, right? You know, these things happen, nature just happens. We're going to have these events that happen. Um, we have cyclones here in Australia all the time. And one of the, uh, the, the researchers here at uh, James Cook University, John Knott, who is a really excellent uh, geomorphologist. Um, and disaster management expert who basically says that the, one of the more frustrating things for him is that whenever a cyclone comes through and wipes out a town or a city, most well, we've been really lucky in Australia, I have to say in some respects, but mostly towns. Um, we just have this kind of mantra like we're going to rebuild and start again. (laughs) And it's kind of like it's just an incredibly frustrating thing for him because we don't move (laughs) and we don't recognize that where we're living is incredibly problematic. And uh, and that cuts to the heart of uh, philosophy, I think, in some ways, like libertarian values versus uh, the ethics of the state itself and what its responsibility is to protect people. How do we change that discussion? That is a really infinitely hard thing to kind of consider upon. And I think it what it requires in particular is a citizen, an engaged citizenry that, reco- that uh, somehow needs to be able to um, get involved in coastal development policies and procedures and development, and also a coastal citizenry that is motivated by the long term not the short term and that's that's the difficult thing right You're, to getting to get people to think what sort of coast are we going to leave for the unborn generation that is that is the that is a pivotal question that i often ask in forums and climate change forums and so forth mm-hmm. and it's difficult to do because you want to enjoy the coast and you want to enjoy it. and and i think what we need to kind of do is have that citizenry really uh, develop and there's been a lot of groups that do this really well um, a, a, as part of a force for change in relation to how we develop the coast change of uh, ethic and yeah well yeah we, and i think also go ahead. I, and i had to say this but academics in particular and and uh writers and and managers and various other people in this space also need to start asking that question as well um we and need to start thinking about what it requires us to actually start putting into place some of those ethics that I sort of talked about before. The precautionary principle uh, in particular is one of those ones that needs to be embedded in thinking about how we develop our coasts now. Okay. If I can just give a small anecdote, please, just to kind of demonstrate what I mean by this. In in the Gold Coast, the Gold Coast mayor was really excited by this idea of building this casino on something called the Spit, which is basically this um, protruding piece of of land that is mostly uh got uh, things like hotels and it's got a it's got sea world on it and things like that and it's 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 an incredibly exposed piece of land when you consider where it's actually at in terms of sea level rise now he was very excited about building all this stuff on there uh but we then saw some, a lot of people push back against that and say no we don't want this we we this is what we want about this place and actually um, one of the narratives that came through about that was like, yeah, what are you actually doing, building a hotel this size and of this magnitude on a piece of property that potentially by twenty fifty might really be starting to get inundated by seawater repeatedly? So um, that was a good win, I thought, in in uh, in respects. And there was an organisation called Save Our Spit that developed and and uh, that really pushed back against that coastal development. And we see that a lot in Australia. I don't know about America, but certainly we see a lot of these groups that that emerge that that sort of push back against development in particular for various reasons.
0: We do. And uh, like the entire conversation we're having is there's a lot to unpack there. I want to go as far back into that commentary about your colleague, and I don't remember you mentioned his name, who was frustrated about the post-cyclone Uh, which are hurricanes in the southern hemisphere for all you Americans that were talking about hurricanes here. Uh, The fact that we 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 announce standing on the rubble. This is common in America every time CNN is down on the beach and there's piles of rubble and there's an American flag stuck in somebody's uh, you know, debris field and they're saying, what, well, how do you feel about this? And he's like, we're, we're rebuilding. That is, that is the given. That's that <laughs> we refuse to surrender. We don't quit. We're Americans. goddammit. it. We're going forward. We're, you know, we're going to fix it. Yeah. And the frustration arises because there is a part of our rational mind that says, well, the risk is proven. It's obviously not a good idea to be here. And the risk should change the calculation of the decision. And I think we have, and, and, and I think this is true in American emergency response, uh, uh, thinking and FEMA or risk managers or all the modelers, they think if we can show you that a inundation, a, a storm surge inundation will flood the entire city of Miami will obviously you will not do anything mm. to, to I- increase the risk. We have put our chips on risk and it is a bad bet. It is never something that drives how people respond to the shoreline. And -hmm. what you were talking about is how do we change the conversation? You said, you know, there's an ethical element here. There is a Mm -hmm. multi-generational element here. Like what do we wanna leave our kids? Those are good arguments. But in the pre-discussion before the show, I think you actually said the right answer to that question, which is the insurance industry. The only thing that's going to change the way people act and behave is the fact that the the folks who control the money, who pay the bill for the assumption of risk, or who invest the money and need a X number of year return, no longer feel it is in their economic interest to keep that to put that hotel on the spit. That mm-hmm. I know I, I count on that. I mean, what do you think? I mean, and it has to do and what i'm drawing together here is a little bit of what tyler was linking with basketball is the arrogance. seriously the arrogance of models and the fact that we can manage and understand and control risk the whole point of what you're saying is there is a recurrence of the sublime the risk is coming back in ways we cannot fucking contend with and that's climate change it's huge and it's and it hasn't registered into our thinking i mean am i you know I don't know is that that's a, no, that's no, a loaded exactly right. you know it's we we don't respond to these risks in the right way right? and I and I have to think it is our pure arrogance that we think we can build this stuff and we've got such mastery of the environment such understanding the best models the best maps the best storm surge analysis this and that and it's like when you script basketball that way, Tyler, when you turn it into a numbers game, you lose the entire art and experience, and, and you lose the truth, too, which is it is an improvisation at full speed by guys who are making passes four steps before anybody's even turned, and there's no language going on. And it's just. Right. Uh, and some, there is something to this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, what it, it comes back to something that I that Barbara Adam, who is a, a, a sort of a time theorist and a futurist theorist out of uh, um, uh, over in the UK, sort of makes a point about that I use in my book. It comes out of our modern experience and our enlightenment project, which basically was this frontier spirit in relation to time. So the frontier spirit is this idea that we go out and we colonize and we control different um, areas of places. Uh, what she basically argues is that we have the same experience or same uh, uh, attitude towards time, that we can go forward. We, in the present, we do things to control what's going to happen 10 years from now, right? So we think that we can do that, and that's part of our mantra. Um, and in actual fact, cap- capitalism is based upon that, really, and that's that's another story for another time. But, um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think that, uh, you know, what I said before about getting civics, uh, civic engagement and people to kind of band together and so forth. It, 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 maybe works in small pockets and small pockets of resistance and various other things, but at a broad level, and when we start talking about, you know, a nation and its responsibility towards the coast or its relationship towards the coast, it's quite evident to me, uh, that increasingly the thing that's going to actually have a major impact, as you said before, is insurance. And i think underwriters around the world are starting to notice this and they've taken a massive hit over the last few years don't forget and you know sandy and um katrina before that and then here in australia you had yazi and then you had nagas in, in in asia and we've had earthquakes and all sorts of other things so they've taken a dramatic hit over the last few years and what we've actually started to sort of see and and this is not even anything to do with sea level rise mind is the the amount of super hurricanes you might want to call them over there you know massive category five cyclone hurricanes whatever you want to say uh, of the magnitude of sandy are really starting to push these rational instruments into like well what the hell are we going to do now because there is that evidence one of the things that kind of comes back to that narrative that you said said and i agree with you and it happens here in australia too we we plonk down the flag and we say yes we'll we have the Australian spirit we're going to rebuild our Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And we saw that recently with the bushfire crisis that we had here too, which is right. another story, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, but inevitably, in, as part of that story is insurance. Yeah. We will rebuild, but that's because we've got these guys over here who are going to sort of back us. Uh, I, I think inevitably, it's inevitable. I think, and this is just my personal opinion, my, rather than my learned opinion about this that insurance industries will actually start to say, hey, uh, we're a little bit concerned that we might not be able to insure these areas anymore. Right. Um, and over time, maybe we'll start to see withdrawal of insurance and and that will then start to affect our relationship to the coast, I think, more dramatically than uh, some sort of fanciful um, maybe not slightly naive way of thinking that well, all of a sudden I, we're going to look at the coast and go, I would you know not. what? it's it sounds fanciful to say that I don't think people it's fanciful and, about future generations. And, well, and I don't think it's naive. I think it's
0: fundamentally true. It's just that it's yeah. it's hard to make that ethic. And I think ethic and yes. and values are fundamental here and will at some point catch up. but, but I do think that at, at what point is it too expensive for the people who actually write the checks, who take the risk of the okay. storm when there's a big casino put out on a spit of land, which is basically butter in, on the seashore. It's a stat, it's a sandbar, you know, that's above water temporarily. This is not the place to put, you know, a forty million dollar, a hundred million dollar piece of, you know, infrastructure or, sure. or investment, but. You know i just i I think this is why the sociology and the psychology and the and the issues that you're trying to unravel and contend with are so important and infuse this entire discussion of the relationship to the shoreline Mm -hmm. um it's it's so multifaceted it's so it it's it kind of goes to our soul a little bit like what are we doing down here why are we making decisions that you know, this is what you commonly hear from inland people in the United States. Well, who the hell would build their house on a damn barrier? out, And they're a fool. Well, it seems so obvious. Well, there's an answer to that. Because let me tell you, it happens all the time at the entire state of Florida. So there is an mm-hmm. answer, and we should try to understand that.
2: I'm wondering, though, if you could just tell me. Because, I mean, we the last hurricane that you had came through, I, I sat there and I watched a live webcam for far too long i can't remember the name what was the name of the it last hurricane probably yet? florence
0: maybe that came across to north carolina for eight days and everybody there was michael who that hit mexico beach florida and destroyed the entire town um mm-hmm. there was maria yeah, that hit, like there was Rico. maria
2: that came across the caribbean yes that's right yeah Well, I just remember sitting there watching a webcam off a balcony in Florida, watching it, thinking, bloody hell, look at that. And and just sort of seeing these waves crashing through into the streets and various other things. Not not big waves, by any stretch. But it did make me wonder, like, how much of this stuff is still going on? Like, you tell me, like, uh, how much are we seeing multi-million dollar houses and so forth being built on... We are. Just today. Just... On on butter. It's hot
1: um, off the press. Uh... I just saw that uh, Bill and Melinda Gates bought a forty-three million dollar beach house in California. Wow. Uh, the, wow! which Malibu, or which I don't, I, I don't know the details, but I mean, yeah. And you know, who I don't, I don't know if Bill and Melinda are going to be uh, stopping by and living there. Or if this is just a <laughs> little investment, <laughs> yeah. well, markets are down, but. Um, Yeah, I don't think there's any stop to it because, and this is where I kind of want to pivot this, is because, you know, there's this risk discussion and there's no doubt that coastlines are risky for structures, right? Because they're moving, they're dynamic places. But risky for people, different question.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. Because the the death toll in these things is actually not... Yeah, but that's a little too literal because... But you're right. I think this is what I'm saying is when you put your chips on the risk square to say, okay, the risk is going to be stacked up so high that it's going to just start to change people's attitude. It's not true. We have shown the capacity to absorb $3 billion events and build right back. And and, and, and I'll just tell you, Nick, and here's in the answer to your question. Is there a decline hmm. in investment on the shoreline of the United States in the high risk areas? The answer is no. Bolivar Peninsula was wiped clean by Hurricane Ike in 2014. 20- 15 I'm going to be wrong on the date 2008 but, right is it eight and it was literally there was there were slabs left in maybe four houses, six houses. The property values post hurricane mm. went up. the the entire yeah. place has been rebuilt. it is bigger, it is more valuable and more at risk than it was when the storm hit. Mexico Beach in Florida Panhandle that was destroyed by hurricane a cat five devastation right we're right back and and so somehow the notion of loss doesn't quite click in and tyler's right i think part of it is there's not great death with it we can see these damn storms coming for eight days everybody gets the hell out of the way except the idiots who have the party and and but the property loss doesn't register it doesn't register
1: Mm -hmm. and it doesn't register because it's actually not that uh, I mean, I I realize that it is expensive and I would hate to be the insurance company on the hook <laughs> to rebuild someone's beach house. I mean, that is an expensive hit. But yeah. uh, the reality is that the economic uh, incentives, especially now, and I'd I'd be curious, Nick, what you've had going on over there in Australia with Airbnb. But here on the American mm. shoreline, Airbnb has transformed the calculation of property ownership transformed the economics of how that works all of a sudden you me and Peter could pick up a place uh, and short t- we could use it for hey you want to you take a week I'll take a week he'll take a week rent it the rest of the time and mm. we'll we'll all make out pretty darn good in that well that changes mm. the entire calculation of uh, our relationship with it we, we don't have to live there, man. We could we could hire a management company to take care of that and we can own that property and have that thing doing well for us. And when it's an investment like that that's supposed to pay, we can we can work in to the price our uh, insurance costs and we can work into the price our risk costs. So I do think that there is a part of the problem is that it's just so good. We like it so damn much, most of the damn time, it's just fine, it is not dangerous. So when you put a bunch of stuff in it and you develop in the the immediate coastal zone area. What I wanna say though, (laughs) to to leave this entire risk thing behind, is that I do think there's a higher and better experience to be had. Uh, And that is to experience wild coast the real sure. thing we i want the real experience
0: says the guy from LA <laughs> <laughs> you're not a northern californian you're down there where the every inch of the damn beach between you know san diego and no i'm not trying to be but i think that is a, an an ethical and and value based statement that there is a better way t- to relate to the shoreline than pounding it with high I rises. would
1: I would rather uh, walk or hike through a yeah. uh, over a boardwalk through a marsh over a dune system yeah. d- and then descend down into the beach I would rather do that than yeah. um, have be in a
0: hotel 15 floors up right on the shoreline hey, looking down no interest in that either Nick why mm. is it Talk to us from a sociological, you know, social value. Uh, Why do we keep making stupid decisions on the coast? Why do we keep making the same damn mistakes we can watch the damn movie? You're an expert. What's going on? Why are we so stupid? Why are we so stupid about this?
2: well uh, <laughs> that's a very good question uh why is why is humanity stupid um <laughs> right, right. well look i have it's a little global i guess that, is a question <laughs> yeah uh i don't know the answer to that question realistically i think um we don't really learn well from history it doesn't seem to be um i have to say i, I do think that uh I, I was interested to hear what you said about you know the complete you know uh, we just rebuild things and just go from it right from there and that just seems to be really interesting that whole uh, bolivar peninsula thing just just sound, sounds too familiar to me uh for some of the things that have happened here in australia in actual fact um uh, look i i don't i think a lot of it has to do again with this drive towards the coast right this drive towards the sea this drive towards being by the sea and what it is about the ocean that seems to Uh, And I don't want to sort of seem too philosophical about this, but the, the ocean does seem to have a philosophical, uh, reach to us that really does touch us in some ways that perhaps, um, other parts of nature do too, like the mountains and various other things. Um, and so we're driven towards this in ways that I think is just incredibly human, you know, that we want to be by something that's so vast and so empty. I was interested to hear that 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 you know this this drive towards wild coasts, and I think that's increasingly becoming more and more popular. This uh, this desire to be on a beach that's not shadowed at three o'clock in the afternoon by uh, high rise development and various other things. It's quite evident that we're sort of seeing to, to, a lot of people, especially domestically, looking for those really wild, untamed, very different beaches than what we see on the mm. on. on on the media if you like um and so and so there is a drive towards this and a lot of it i think has to do with just modernity more generally speaking or urbanity right this we're so cluttered by the the world that we live in and this is maybe me being a little bit too philosophical we we just our senses and our our especially our eyes and our ears are just assaulted and this coming this comes back from georg simmel's work and the metropolis and mental life Georg Zimmel in 1903 said effectively that the metropolis assaults our senses in a way that never has before. You know, we're constantly being bombarded by all these symbolic things and all these noises and all these things telling us to come here and have a look at this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The the coast becomes a very different space in that respect than to what we're used to, especially those of us who live in urban areas that... For want of a better word, and I I can only speak about this myself personally, when I'm walking on a beach that is completely deserted and and has no one on it and it's spacious and stuff, I just suddenly, uh, I have an emotional response to that, which Mm -hmm. cannot actually necessarily be put into words appropriately, I don't think, um, and and it still have we still have those pockets of spaces around the world and we do very much have those pockets of spaces here in australia i sort of mentioned before tasmania the island state that belongs at the below of australia there are a number of beaches in tasmania that are just deserted they're just empty and you can just park your car walk across the boardwalk onto a beach that's expansive and just sit there and you won't see anyone for hours and it's just a beautiful experience I have to say, um, and there's just something, there is a psychology behind it. There is a biology behind it even too, uh, where you, um, you know, it must activate all sorts of different things. I'm not a psychologist or a neuropsychologist by any stretch, but it, it it's becoming increasingly evident that open space has a major impact on your senses in a ways that, um, that maybe in sociology we need to start taking into consideration a bit more too. I love that. I
0: think when I was reading about your early experience and and I and I it was in a book or in an article about when you went returned to the coast. Um, it was the sound. It was the smell. You could you can. It had to do with senses, and I hear this from people a lot, and it's truly the way mm. I experience it too is the inputs into your eyes into your ears and into your smell and taste change and there, you're, you're right there's an assault on our senses i love new york city but the din and the sound of the city is really difficult to adjust to if you haven't been there for a mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. and the coast is the rhythm the sound the light the fact that you can see the horizon you know, it is an ominous place, yes, below the water, but the fact that you have the visibility to go to the edge, I think is, to me, this stuff is, is as you said, this is part of the biology and the, and I don't know, you call it soul or the spirituality that refreshes people's sense. I mean, it, it really is powerful and we want to buy it you know we want to build we want to yeah we'll be on the 15th floor of a condo next to eight other condos (laughs) because god damn it we're gonna look out over the water and we're gonna see the sunset and it's gonna it's gonna do that for me from the 15th floor i'm gonna i'm gonna be able to buy that experience and it's it you know it makes it so hard i think for people when they're people especially who are critical of coastal development and i am plenty critical of, of, of the insensibility and the irrationality of so much that we do near the water. But there's a drive here that I cannot explain, that, that, mm. that we set aside fundamental ideas of risk and somehow we decide to just plow into this stuff. I don't get it. I mean, it's, 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 just, well, it's perplexing.
2: Well, this is why you see all these people in the past who have said this stuff about coasts, poets and romanticists and various other things. Right. So there's two quotes that really stick to my mind when I when I think about these sorts of things. And I often just chuck these quotes out on social media just because I, I have such an affinity to the water and to the coast in some respects. And Helen Keller, of all people, actually said, I could never stay long enough on the shore. The tang of the untainted, fresh and free sea air was like a cool, quieting thought. Um, and then you had John Keats, uh, say, oh uh, ye who have your eyeballs vexed and tired, feast them upon the wideness of the sea. And those two quotes in particular just uh, remind me again. And, and yeah, I think we can be overly cynical in sociology at times because we can say, oh, that's all social construction, blah, 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 blah. Nah. Um, but, uh, social construction is even the early sociologist said social construction aside, it still has a real impact on the senses and on the emotions. and I love that John Keats part because there's a, there's a, I wish I could show you the picture actually. There's a, a lookout that you can go to just north of Cairns where you can overview this, this expansive coast, but you can actually start to see all the different, uh, movement of sand in the water and it, you can, if it, on a good day you can start to see the edge of of, the, as you, of course the reef is out there somewhere but it's too far out, but you can start to see the impact of the reef on, on this sort of thing and I just sit there sometimes and look at it and think wow this is incredible, like this is just, uh, as it says it, your eyeballs are tired and vexed there's something about mm-hmm. the sea that seems to rest them Mo- know, if that's the right thing, I'm not a poet
0: Melville <laughs> in the first page of Moby Dick where he talks about about being called being in this city in the in the difficulty and how he is drawn to the sea the place of clarity the f- place of escape the, you know of some something it melville is also that's in the opening of moby dick is exactly i think expressed it really well he said I think Ismael says something like, I'm going to beat the hell out of these people who are driving me nuts, or I'm going to get on a boat and get the hell out of here. He basically says, I'm going insane unless I can get on a boat and go to sea because of the pressure and the contention and the complexity of life. And one thing the sea is is the land water interface, as you said, and this is why I, I look at Australian beaches all the time and I'm like, man, do I want to go there? Uh, the simplicity of the land and the water and the horizon, and the and, and especially if you are alone, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not a complex space sensual censure from senses from your senses. It's
2: it's a pure
0: and understandable. I think just something about
2: it. I don't know. I'm going mm. too
0: crazy, but
2: no, no. But it's simplistic, and I think you made the point there. It's 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 a simple aesthetic that is not complicated, and that's in some respects, the antidote or the antithesis, if, antithesis, if you say, I can never say that word properly to antithesis, modern life, yes. which is cluttered, which is fast paced. It's instantaneous. And it's not even just being in a city, right? It's when we've been in this COVID crisis. And this is why maybe a lot of people are trying to reach out to the city is that we're suddenly in, we're just stuck inside. And if you're like me and you work from home, you're constantly in front of a screen. And you're constantly be surrounded by. Like I have children who have to do homeschool, and the assault on the senses just too much. Yeah. And so the city, the sea becomes, and the beach, in some respects, becomes a, a perfect uh, binary opposite to that in some ways. Um, and there's there is there is a very emotive and emotional response to these things. But also the sea reminds us, and I'm reminded of Georg Zimmel, who once said that the sea was, for him, a symbol of um, uh, of both unhappiness, but also uh, a kind of a reconciliation and healing elation over life. So he was trying to say that the sea demonstrates to us death, but it also demonstrates to us life and the capacity to overcome things. And and so it was a very philosophical way of thinking about it, no doubt, but there's something very, very different about the sea by a stretch and when you're sitting on the edge of it, watching it, it's very very, um, different to maybe just sitting in a in my room looking at the television screen or something. (laughs) Well, great last words, uh, Dick.
0: I really appreciate you on absolute short notice from across the planet. To get in touch with you and have a chance to have this conversation is just a real privilege. And I really thank you uh, for taking time to be on the podcast with Tyler and I.
2: Uh, No problem. It's been a privilege as well, I must say.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Nick Osbaldiston from James Cook University in in Cairns, Australia. He is the author of a book that everyone should look up on Amazon. It's called Towards the Sociology of the Coast, Our Past, Present, and Future Relationship with the Shore. It's an all-encompassing topic. There's a ton to think about here. And uh, Nick, I think you've brought a perspective that no one else has ever brought to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights and your thoughts on, on uh, your work uh, at, at James Cook University. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You're too generous.